Hello, and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon, and this week my guest is Brian Hood. This one's a little different because Brian is a mixer and masterer right now. He's produced a ton of records in the past, but he's kind of moved on to doing some really cool educational stuff for producers. So we kind of go all over the place between your kind of standard noise careers interview and then talk about some really cool stuff that I think would be really interesting to both musicians and producers alike, even just about some ways you manage your life better and some really cool insights. Brian's a really smart and interesting guy, and I think this episode is really cool. You may know him because he's recorded bands like Memphis May Fire, For All Eternity, Era, Sworn In, Being It As An Ocean. But he's also doing some really cool recording classes, and he's got a really cool blog out there. And I think this is a really, really cool interview, so I hope you enjoy it as much as I did having the conversation. So, check it out. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, Tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what are you using to record your voice today? I have an SM7B plugged into a cheap little Apogee G1 interface on my laptop. And uh, I, I tried to go through my UAD Apollo, but couldn't get UAD's console to play well with Skype. So Interesting. I this is the way to go. Nice. So tell me about your background in music. Uh, my background in music was straight out of high school, um, or even in high school. I was actually touring in a metal band called My Children, My Bride. Yes. Our first tour was spring, no, fall break my senior year. My second tour was spring break my senior year. And then straight out of high school, we started touring full time. So college was never a consideration for me. And my family was okay with that. Very supportive family. So it's very I was nice. lucky with that. And so for the following four years, I toured full time about anywhere from, we kind of ramped up to a max at about 250 shows a year. Wow. Did 44 states, eight countries before I left the band at the end of 08 and started the studio. Nice. So tell me about how that started to happen, that you decided you like recording more than that and how that I, you actually made that transition happen. So the studio is where it was kind of like my life passion from high school on. I had been kind of recording little crappy demos in my basement from a younger age. And uh, that was kind of like when I'm sitting in high school, all my friends are thinking about what they want to be, accountants or doctors or lawyers. I was like, you know what? I'd like to have a studio one day. And it took a while, but eventually I got one. And so, though, what was the transition like going from band dude to production dude? How, <laughs> how, did, how did that work out? Band dude. Um, 
Well, it was a lot of studying towards the, me wrapping up the things with my band at the end. I did a lot of studying into uh, which DAW I was going to use, mm-hmm. what hardware I was going to use. I wanted to make sure I made the right decision on where to start. And so a lot of it was a lot of Google. <laughs> yes. So before I, uh, before I ordered anything, before I spent money, I did a lot of research and landed on you know a nice little starter interface, a DigiDesign 003 Rack Plus, eight channels, so I knew I could record drums with it. And um, I had watched a whole bunch of videos, so I knew the basics of Pro Tools before it even got to my house. And then um, as soon as it came in, I think within my first month of having my gear, I had my first paid project. So it was very quick, very rapid, and I'm an obsessive learner, and I'm an obsessive studier. So I had I spent a lot of time trying to research and get things uh, together to be able to record a, a project from start to finish. I see it. Yeah, you got, got to be an obsessive learner because like they are, the, the one thing that they're showing with like education these days is that if somebody's not learning and doing at the same time, they never remember anything. So you must have had a pretty apt talent for that. That's that's the only way I can learn. If I if I try to learn, well, I kind of am going back on what I said where I was I studied everything about Pro Tools I could before I got it. Mm. But at the same time, you know, you don't really learn anything until you get in and get your hands dirty. So with me, if I'm trying to learn any skill, I try to learn it when I'm applying it. Otherwise, I get about 12% of the knowledge. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what they're generally finding today. It's like something I try to tell everybody. It's like, don't do all the studying. you got to be doing, you know, like they're starting to say in like, you know, advanced learning now that it's like you almost need to be doing not the 80-20, but they're saying like the 70-30 of 70 doing 30 learning. I agree with that. Nice. <laughs> I'm huge on the 80-20 principle or any any variation thereof. So with that, let's get into some of what you're doing to teach people. So you have a blog. You just put out an audio book. You have a whole course on mixing. Can you start to tell us a little bit about that? Audio book, no. I don't have an audio book because I'm – Oh, I, uh, I, I say I meant e-book, e-book, e-book. E-book, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a little – a little easier. It's it's yeah. not a long book. It's only about ten or twelve thousand words. You know, I I thought it was something that needed to be written, kind of like a a guide to get the overall view of what it is to be a successful producer. Um, th- that's kind of the entire blog's mission. There's, I was I've always wanted a blog. I always wanted to kind of teach, but the the entire world of blogging is oversaturated, in my opinion. Um, there's more than enough blogs out there talking about gear. There's more than enough that talk about mixing. There's more than enough to talk about, you know, it'll teach you anything you want to know, but I didn't see anyone teaching about the business side of running a home studio. So I thought that'd be my angle. I thought that's something that I know a lot of because I'm very passionate about business and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, it was really easy. The, the, the tagline I had for my blog from day one was a no BS blog about running a profitable home studio or something like that. Nice. So Give us a little bit more on the uh, mixing course. The mixing course is something that I've completely separated from the blog because uh, the readers of the blog are mostly, the majority are not into heavy music. And the mixing course, the mixing course is entirely, you know, mixing a song from start to finish. And it's a heavy, it's heavy music. It's the course is called from shit to gold. So that's kind of, (laughs) (laughs) that's the branding I chose. And it's because when I get to do something like this, you look at the Creative Live route, and I love that company. I love the, what, what they do. But me as a businessman, I don't want necessarily to get 20% of the revenue for a course. So I'm much more uh, scrappy than that. I figured I can figure out how to do everything myself. So uh, the premise of the course is teaching people how to mix a song from start to finish. I provide the raw audio files and... It's about 65 videos long, and I try to separate them and label them well so it's easy to follow. And I teach the same way I learn well. I can watch someone do something, hear their explanation of what they did, and kind of apply it 
however I want to my sound. So basically the videos are more specific on what I do and, and I try to explain why I do all these things. The videos are all about my, my take on it and the entire course is me telling you to take what I do and shape it into your own sound. So with that, I kind of put it all together myself. I did all the filming, all the lighting, all the video editing, uh, all the, sh the shoots, the scripts, the, you know, everything I possibly could myself. I hosted it. I found the, the software to run it through WordPress and I did it basically cheap and as scrappy as possible so that, you know, it was, it was something that could be run on the background while I focus on other entrepreneur endeavors that I have. Nice. And so since these two things are, are so you say you're Mostly I do the heavy, so uh, that it's mostly people don't do heavy music on your blog. Are you mostly, when you're recording now, still doing heavy music? Are you diversifying with that? Yeah, that's all I do right now. The diversification is in other business things I'm doing. I, I focus 100% solely on heavy music within my mixing in my studio mm -hmm. because that's what I'm good at. I'm not really good at anything else but that. But with the blog, I try to make that a more broad category because I can, like with the ebook, I've experimented with, with Facebook ads mm -hmm. and had a lot of success with it just because I'm, and I'm just advertising to general people that are interested in audio engineering, home studios, and a very broad category. And with heavy music, you don't have that kind of broad potential. So yeah, it's definitely one of those things. It's a more limited market, but it's a very passionate market. Absolutely. And w the thing about the blog is uh, with producers in general, it's really hard to separate the left brain people from the right brain people. Mm -hmm. it, you're either one or the other. You're, you're very rarely both. Um, I think you're probably one of the few that are both because <laughs> I've I, seen uh, the things you've done. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I like to say that uh, I, about, about around about 32, I figured out like, okay, I can explain things that are creative to people, so I better start learning how to do something with this. Absolutely. So the goal of the blog is to kind of tie those two things together. I'm, I'm much more left brain than right brain. Mm -hmm. I struggle with creativity, but at the same time, I do have a creative side and it comes out. And when it comes out, I love when it comes out. But for the most part, people are terrible at running home studios. And that's <laughs> as a business side, at least, or an efficiency side. And that's what I want to teach people about. That, that is definitely very needed. It's funny. Like I, uh, I had some notes to do like a book, like what you did. I read what you did. And I was like, you know what? That's good. I don't ever have to scratch this itch now because somebody did it well so I, I i kind of always am glad when somebody does it well i checked it out, i was like oh good now i don't ever have to deal with this <laughs> so i i highly endorse what you did i when i when i first went up it was a little bit of bitterness and then i was like all right this is good good for him so <laughs> well, you can still write it man there's yeah. plenty more to be said about it yeah i i, th I, th I think it's what, what, what one of those things where it's just like ah this isn't on my uh i got really into this thing of um writing down the five things that are most essential to do before I die instead of the 25 things I could do and taking that Warren Buffett approach of like, I'm just going to focus on these five. And that was definitely not in the five right now. I understand. So let's get into you and music a little bit. What instruments do you play? I play drums, guitar, bass. I play guitar first. Mm -hmm. And in my old band, I did write a lot of our music on guitar, but drums were my passion. That was something I picked up. And when I turned 16, instead of getting a new car, I got a drum set. Nice. That, 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 that can be a hard, hard decision sometimes for the kids to, to, to know that you should forgo. You talk a lot about how your friends were thinking about doctors and lawyers. It's an interesting thing because, like, you know, there's the association that the musician's hanging out with the burnout, yet you got kind of this business mind. Was some of that from who you were hanging out with? I would say all of it was actually from my move to Nashville. Mm. Uh, my previous studio was in a place called Lacey Springs, Alabama. Oh, man. <laughs> it's yeah. worse than it sounds. It was, the, it was actually the meth capital of Alabama. 
Alabama. Um, it was the most meth busts, busts per capita, I think, in the state. And so it was it was a shithole, man. I uh, I loved the studio I had, and I liked living on 10 acres. It was cool, but I, I hated being 45 minutes from my friends. And, you know, it, the, just the atmosphere of my neighbors were not great. So the move to Nashville was the, the biggest change in my life and the best decision I ever made because it started putting me around successful people with better mindsets, people who actually thought about the future, people who were hugely impactful in my life. And, and one of the things that I am a big believer in is um, one small shift in someone's life at the right time can make a major impact on the end of their life. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like the, the uh, I forget who, where I heard this, but it was like a two degree difference in trajectory or, 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 or uh, angle can be the difference from someone flying out of Los Angeles. The two, de- two degree difference can be the difference between landing in Japan or landing in uh, Australia, something crazy like <laughs> yeah, that. And yeah, yeah. I don't know how true that is, but mm-hmm. you know, the earlier in life you get that right nudge in the right direction, the better off you're going to be. And that, that nudge happened at the right time. You know, I was 25 years old, moved to Nashville and completely engulfed myself with friends that were entrepreneurs, people that were you know, extremely disciplined and working out every day, people who would drag me to the gym every day, mm. type of people that would, you know, invite me out to, you know, meetups with other entrepreneurs or, you know, join the entrepreneur center here in Nashville, people who were starting businesses, you know, the, the kind of stuff that you didn't, that I didn't get in Lacey Spring, Alabama, that I did get in Nashville is a huge part of my life now. I, I had a very, very similar thing with New York City it was just, I were up a little bit outside of it. And it really was that thing of um, a lot of time later in life, when I tell people like who some of my friends are, they're like, how did you guys meet so young? They lived in Flatbush, Brooklyn, and you lived in suburbs of New Jersey. And it was that thing of like, I got to be around the good, mo- uh, the right minds. And it really... I could have been a, a very bad place. I dropped out of high school. I did. I could have been gone very, very bad ways. And it really is that thing of taking seriously who you surround yourself with and getting to a good place is one of the most life-changing things you can really do. Uh, this is a, a thing I heard in the four-hour work week, which, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you've read or yes. maybe you haven't. But uh, you are the average of your five closest friends, yes. and that is absolutely true. I try to be the lowest of the five if I can. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> nice. I, I think he actually stole this from I, I heard that he stole that from the economist Mil- Milton Friedman. Yeah, I, I knew he didn't wasn't the originator, but that was the first place I heard it. Yeah, totally. No, that, that was a, a life changing one for me, too. I guess really it was you're the wealth of those five people and then somebody changed it to friends yeah. and all that. And I definitely believe that in every instance. So you have your own studio in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? So. I found <clears throat> found this place on Craigslist, which is where I've found every living situation I've had as an adult. That's <laughs> right, right, right there with you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I found it on Craigslist. It was, had no photos. All it had was a description. And I had been looking for about three months for a place to move here. And I found it within 15 minutes of him posting it, called him, signed the lease that night, moved in three days later. So it was a quick move. I knew exactly what I wanted as soon as I saw it. And it was, it's right downtown, great location, great rent, hasn't been raised in four years. And it's, it was an absolute unicorn of a building as far as the setup. I'm in it right now. I don't know if you can see the video on the screen. I can see see a little bit of it. Yeah. But so I have in this, it was actually a live work situation. So I had, uh, it was essentially three bedrooms and a big living room lounge with a downtown Nashville view and the view of the Gulch, which is like a nice area of Nashville. And so one of the bedrooms, I guess you'd say, was uh, my, my control room. This, the other one is the live room. And then the other one was the one I slept in. Uh, and I'm saying this in past tense because I'm actually moving out this way. Oh, wow. <laughs> but I'm not exactly moving out because uh, 
about a year ago, I stopped recording bands. I only do mixing and mastering now. That was just something that I've, after uh, analyzing my business, analyzing what I actually liked and disliked about recording and mixing and mastering and tracking bands and lodging bands, you know, looking at everything, scrutinizing it. And, and this is all things I covered in the blog. This is, if, you, if you've read my blog, this is no, no news to you. But after analyzing everything, uh, I just determined that I love mixing and mastering. I don't necessarily like tracking. It is definitely not the more, most profitable part of my business as far as from a monetary standpoint, which I definitely take into account. You know, it's, it's kind of, what's the word? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's frowned upon to talk about business and money and creativity in the same breath. But <laughs> it's, it's something when it's your full-time job, you have to take that kind of stuff into account. So Yeah, and everybody wants a passionate person who's happy working on their record, not somebody going, wow, this is really a drag that I feel obligated to do this because of societal norms. Absolutely. So it, you can very quickly, especially if you're recording bands you aren't necessarily into, get into that negative mindset and, and it can really show through on the projects you're working on. So for the betterment of everyone, I just stopped recording bands because it wasn't something I truly enjoyed. It wasn't something I was extremely passionate about. And I just honestly didn't like living with bands. Yeah, that, 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 was, that is one I do not miss. And it's funny because at one time it really was one of my favorite parts of it. And that it became same here, man. It's when I first started, you know, it, you have that young naivety and you starting out, I made friends with so many of these bands, but over the years, I don't know if I just became a bitter old man, (laughs) but you just, you just didn't get as close to a lot of the bands you recorded. And I, you know, I don't, not sure what it was, but there was a shift in my mindset, the shift in what I wanted to do. And that was exclusively focusing on mixing and mastering. So back to the studio, you know, since, since I wasn't using the space for tracking anymore, it didn't really make sense to waste the space. So I transitioned it into a vacation rental. It's downtown. It's a hot market for bachelor and bachelor parties. So it's nice. on Airbnb and I, you know, you'll get a thousand, 1200 bucks a night for this place in the right area for the, for the right group. And, you know, it just doesn't make sense to live and work out here anymore. So I, I wow. just signed a lease in another uh, place uh, across town. And I still have this place and I just use it for vacation rental now. That's pretty damn cool. So a lot of people, though, want to make the transition to just mixing. Obviously, most people, Mm -hmm. that's their favorite part of it. How did you go about making the transition to just doing that and being able to do that? I get that question all the time from from. Uh, people, readers on the blog. And, and it's the same thing for me because my, I still produce a good amount, but I definitely do. I would say 75% of my work is mixing and mastering and then 25% is producing because it just doesn't make sense for me to take projects when I make more money and get more enjoyment out of mixing and exactly. mastering. Yeah. The same way when I analyze things and I, and I, and I may still take a couple of tracking projects on here, or there, um, for really good bands, you know, get a place for the drums and do everything else in house. But that's, that's very rare. It's just like basically my friends bands or any big bands that may come my way. But the transition is for me, it was absolutely completely natural. I was, I started off, I had never actually mixed a project. I didn't track for probably two years, hmm. maybe three years. And eventually, you know, you get a band that sends you something being as an ocean. I think when it may have been one of the first bands that I got that, that sent me the tracks from across, you know, from California mm-hmm. and let me mix and master the uh, album. And from there, it just kind of grows. You know, you get credited for mixing and mastering on an album, and then you get a couple more bands from that. It's the, the word-of-mouth advertisement. But the biggest part is you have to have a sound that is in, in demand, and that can change drastically depending on what, what the market wants. You know, it can be – it's very fickle, and that's also why I'm working in other entrepreneur endeavors because I don't know how secure my job is. Even, mm-hmm. even now, I'm doing well, but, 
you know, three to five to 10 years from now, what am I going to be doing? Cause is my sound going to be in demand? Am I going to mm-hmm. be able to keep up with the changes in producing and, and mixing and, and what the trend, what trends people want? You know, if you want super raw recordings, which is kind of seeming like it's going that direction now, if it hasn't already fully shifted, is it the super overprocessed sound that was kind of popular three or four years ago? Is it somewhere in between? You know, I, I just don't know where it's going to be. So, but at, at, at this current time, I do have a demand for my sound. Mm-hmm. I have bands that, that reach out to me a lot in Australia still. I don't know why I get hmm. so many bands from over in Australia, but I'm not going to complain because they're all good. Well, I, 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 you know, I, I actually had this discussion with somebody recently. There, there's always a pocket of the world where the engineers haven't quite caught on, despite how flattened the world's gotten with YouTube videos and tutorials. They haven't quite caught on to how to get that sound totally because they're missing 10 to 15 percent of what they could be doing. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get you get a whole influx. Like I can remember, you know, Japan and Eastern Europe when I first started in the late '90s. You know, every one of those bands got sent over here all the time, or you flew over one of the two. And now it does seem to be Australia. Oh, absolutely. I've never. Oh, I have mixed some bands from Australia or from Japan, but mm-hmm. not a not a lot right now. Um, maybe two or three from over there, but. You know, I, I don't complain about where I get it. <laughs> yeah, I just, yeah, totally. I'll, I'll take it from wherever it comes. It just happens to be Australia right now. It's funny. I moved to Nashville four years ago, and I haven't recorded a single Nashville band since I moved here. So <laughs> <laughs> so it really comes down to if you're trying to make that shift, you have to be good at what you're trying to do. Um, is it one of your strengths? Do you like doing it? Because that's not always the same thing, unfortunately. I, I think that's a good way of putting it. So this new place you're moving, you're going to have a mixing room, I assume? Yeah, it's going to be uh, not going to be much different than the place I have now. It's essentially just a bedroom. I'm, I, I call myself a bedroom producer. Mm. It's a negative term, but it's one of those things like I, I always like having a live work situation no matter where I am. I do treat the room as, as well as I can as far as sound treatment. But to me, I th- and this is, this is so far against what most people believe, so you can kind of chalk this up on your question later. Mm. Uh, where, what was the question about? Uh, you can ask me now, actually, because this yeah. is the answer to that crazy thing I believe that everyone else thinks I'm yeah, crazy. So, for, but. Okay, yeah. So the question is, because I don't ask this one a lot on the podcast, because a yeah. lot of people don't seem to be into it. But uh, so, what is the craziest thing you believe that no one else, uh, that everybody else thinks you're wrong about? This probably isn't the craziest thing I believe, but it's <laughs> one of the craziest things. I firmly believe in it. While every room is not ideal for mixing, I really think that you can learn any room that you can mix in. And if, whether it's a bedroom or it's a small, just oddly shaped room. I remember Joey Sturgis, when I, I recorded with Joey Sturgis actually back in 2007 in my old band, and his room was about a six by 14 rectangle <laughs> mm-hmm. with the worst speaker placement you could have, but he still got records recorded. They sounded great. And they, it just takes a matter, it's a matter of learning your room, treating it the best you can, and not using that as an excuse for your mixes because... I've had the much like terrible situations for mixing in the past, but I've always made it work. I've always found what adjustments need to be made and how my ears need to adjust to the room. So all that to say, yes, I'll be mixing basically in a bedroom. Well, the funny thing is, is I totally agree with you. I think that there's a room acoustics industrial complex that is out to get your money. And, uh, <laughs> I actually so I make all my sound treatment myself. <laughs> yeah. Same here actually as well. And, um, the thing I discovered, I was very lucky around the early two thousands to get to travel with Steve Evitz and Ross Robinson. And then my own productions going to some of the best studios in the world all the time for records. Cause we had monumentally huge budgets yeah. that and was back in the day. We don't have that anymore. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is now 
12 to 15 years ago. But so, but the one thing I noticed is all the best control rooms, and like especially I think back to this place, uh, Indigo Ranch, where Ross made many of his most successful big early records. We had the early Corn records, early first Slipknot record, was just the deadest room, but not very treated. And so. What I kept learning as I went to some other rooms is if you just make a room super, super dead. So what I do is I put fabric on every surface and I try to just make it as dead as possible. Like a movie theater. Yeah, yeah. Like essentially carpet the walls and you can make some pretty damn good mixed decisions for $200 of a fabric on the wall instead of $2,000 of doing that if you just learn the room and have a good relationship with your monitors. I like I like you like I said earlier, I completely agree with that. Mm-hmm. And you can argue it all day. Now, now there's more optimal. There's more optimal mm-hmm. ways to do things. Sure, sure. George Massenberg's um, room is amazing to sit and listen to at Blackbird, but it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to right, do that. Exactly. So, I kind of just look at the eighty twenty principle for everything mm-hmm. in my life and adhere to that. I can get. Well, well, why even, do you drill down on that? Because I imagine most people have mm-hmm. never heard the eighty twenty principle. The eighty twenty principle is. Essentially, this 80 percent of your results come from twenty percent of the efforts, or you can flip that around and say, you know, maybe eighty percent of your problems come from twenty percent of your actions. Or uh, there's all sorts of ways you can spin it. But if you take any part of your business or life, you can essentially apply the eighty twenty principle, eighty twenty principle to it, and figure out the most effective eighty percent and or the most effective twenty percent, and then just remove the eighty percent. So for me, essentially, like for example, in my studio, you know, I was getting eighty percent of my income from twenty percent of the work through mixing, and I was spending eighty percent of my time to get twenty percent of my income through tracking bands. So essentially, what you would want to do is remove the tracking if that's not something you enjoy. And with this, with the uh, mixing room, it's not even eighty twenty. It's probably more like ninety to ninety five five. So where you get ninety percent of the mixing result, you know, the final mix is going to sound relatively the same whether you're in a blackbird or a bedroom if you know the room well enough and if you have ears to a you know i'm not sure how close you could get (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's going to be close enough to where you can put a very very respectable product out i'll say that Uh, it it, you definitely can get something that sells a lot of records if you're good Mm -hmm. at what you do yep the more important thing is having passion about the project you're working on doing things the way you need to do them the way you know you're supposed to do them and not focusing on the the little things or I'm sorry, not not getting caught up in the little things that don't matter, at least. Yes. So what's the biggest mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? Oh, I love this one. God, <laughs> just not not being prepared. This is the one that you're going to get the same answer from every single producer. Yeah, so, so it's very funny. I was just saying this on the one I taped two hours ago, is he's had the opposite one, which is bands being too prepared. Oh, good. That's a good problem to have. Oh, my God. It is <laughs> a good problem. Nice. But, but, you know, then there's the thing of that. They're so in love with all their demos and all their okay, thought yeah. on the process that it makes it impossible to shape anything different. That is that is true. I could see, I could see the, that side, if, especially if you're one to write a lot with the bands there's a way to be effective with making bands do what you want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds really bad, but it's, you know, it, essentially you have the, you have the band's best interest at heart. And as long as they understand that and, and trust you and, and com- are comfortable with you, then a lot of the things you suggest, they, they will at least try, you mm-hmm. know? So I'd rather have a band come in overprepared and me work my magic with them 
mentally <laughs> mm-hmm. and through trust than, than to come in completely unprepared. And we have to sit and spend all of our time just getting the basic shit done, like tracking your part or knowing what your vocal lines are or the patterns, you know, mm-hmm. that's the, I'd rather spend too much time, you know, convincing them that this idea is better than what they had than to spend all the time just getting basic takes out of them. I think that's a great way of putting it. How about a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? Come in prepared. <laughs> <laughs> I would say a smart thing is coming in overprepared <laughs> mm. as opposed to what the other producers said, because, you know, as long as you understand that you need to be open-minded with the producers and, and that they have your, your best interest at heart, then you, you can still shape the songs, even if you've pre-proed everything. A lot of bands like us that I like, they'll have the drums midied out. They'll have you know, the guitars tabbed out. They'll have all the vocals written. Good God. How many bands have come in with no vocals? Oh, I know. You? It's like the the plague of the earth are vocalists to me. And and they end up being the most likable people in the band, but they're the most unprepared. Yeah, and you know you know and it was it was a funny thing I can remember when I used to do heavier records is I can remember this kid said, "Well, you know, vocals are the least important part of a heavy band." And I'm like, where did you get this thought process from? Who said that? The vocalist said that? The vocalist literally said that to me. And, you know, oh, he had written man. all the guitar parts, but it was like, That's oh, where man, I want to see would, the where are they now special. Yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, uh, uh, it, it's not so pretty for sure, but uh, okay. <laughs> it's just one of those ones where I'm like, where the fuck did you get this thought process from? <laughs> like, the most important thing, <laughs> I don't care what it is, is the vocal. Yeah, I, I will agree with that. Uh, but yeah, vocalists that come in with their parts written and their patterns mapped out is very rare. And their songs named. That's happened maybe twice in my life. Someone comes in with song names already. But occasionally you get those bands. They're a pleasure to work with. And the final product is always infinitely better than the unprepared band that you're just kind of slogging through. I am r- right there with you on that one. Tell me what happens when you and a band disagree on something. Oh, this is fun. Um, <laughs> I, have a, <laughs> I have a very dominant personality, especially mm-hmm. when I had bands in the studio. Probably one of the reasons I don't do it anymore because I, I I have a reputation of being extremely mean if I have to be, mm-hmm. uh, and, and not necessarily mean. It's always I have a smile on my face. It's always joking, but at the same time I'm serious. You know, if 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 you come at me, it, if you come at me with a terrible idea, we will absolutely try it. But then I'll show you how bad it is, and nine times out of ten they realize how bad it was. But if we disagree on something, uh, I have I have two different thresholds with that. I have one. It's it's kind of like you know it's their record. They're the ones paying for it. They're the final say-so. That is, that is how I approach most problems. But sometimes you have to save a band from themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and when those times come, I will absolutely not let that band do certain things on the record mm-hmm. unless, unless they just absolutely throw a hissy fit. Otherwise, if it's, if it's something I can get away with, I'll absolutely make them do it. If it's something I think that is absolute, like completely detrimental to the band's record. I, you know, I, I think about this one a lot lately because, like, you know, when it, the reason I started producing was this band, this producer was trying to save me from what I wanted, and he didn't <laughs> get that. I liked punk, not metal, even if my Fair band enough. sounded a little metal. And so he was putting the '80s reverb drum on, and I did it. So I always sided on this thing mm-hmm. of, you know what, you got to just let that band make their mistake. But then I'm starting to get in the thing of like, if I think about, you know, kind of doing the eighty twenty thing of like. What's more common? What's more common is a band has a terrible idea and then the record reviews come out and say, what the fuck was that dumb vinyl effect on the whole first song or whatever cheesy idea they had. And I almost am starting to decide on the thing of that you do have to save them more than you do need to just go, you know what, you're right, I should let you follow your will. I'd say this, if you are 
that like the guy you, you made the example of there, he was not, you know, an expert in punk, I, mm-hmm. I would imagine, or else yes. he wouldn't be trying to do big 80s snares on a punk record. Yes. But if you are the expert in the genre you're doing, which to, to me, you're not going to dominate anything if you're not if you're not focusing on one niche, you're going to mm-hmm. be decent at everything instead of great at one thing. Mm hmm. If you're the specialist, if you're the one that knows that genre inside and out, you know what is popular, you know you know what shouldn't be done, what is too done, what is outdated, you know. If you were that guy that knows all these things, then it would be more than 80-20. You would, 99% of the time, you'd be the one that's right in, a, mm. in an instance where you're saving the band from a mistake. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it has to be something that I'm, you know, absolutely against on the record before me to have that kind of stance. Mm-hmm. I wish I could remember an example, but I, there are some extreme things that I've kept bands from doing before. I, I, I like that thought. So let's go through some modern production stuff and how you feel about it. Do amp simulators have a role in your production? Absolutely, but not in the mixes. It's well, unless you count a Kemper. A Kemper, I guess, is amp modeling. So yeah, mm-hmm. I have a lot of profiles I've made that I love using. Any any band I've recorded, I'll I'll try to have a profile of it, and that's translated well to mixing because I have tons of different profiles and I can mix and match the cabs and the amps and the. In recording, I actually would always track with an amp sim hmm. and the reason for that is i like uh, i like having the di for editing i like having the di for editing i don't like having two tracks together that i'm editing you know like the real amp and then the di track it also saves a lot of noise because hmm. the way my studio is set up i don't have like a nice little soundproof room for the cabs uh, and it saves tube life it's just one of those things the trifecta there for me so i'll i'll track and every edit everything with an amp simulator and then i'll uh reamp it when i'm mixing hmm cool uh, how about sample drums? Sample drums, yes. I'm a huge fan of samples, especially the ones that I've made. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a lot of sample packs out there, uh, what I call basic bitch drums. Mm. And those are the drums that everyone has access to and that you've heard on countless records. I try to blend a lot of the stuff that I have together with either the live drums, if, if I can. If the, if the, Now that I'm mixing, I don't really have any control over how the drums sound mm-hmm. or the, the, the files I get, at least. But if, the, if they sound great, I'll always mix. If not, I try to have my own samples so that it's not something that every kid in his basement has, you know? So I have, it's funny, I did a, I had a, a, another company I was trying to work on called Drum Trunk, mm-hmm. and the whole idea behind that was, it was like a subscription model for drum samples, and it was a small pack of samples every month with different producers, different studios around Nashville, mm. and I did the first pack of samples with Michael Wagner, who's like a oh, big wow. yeah, 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 the yeah, 80s. Totally. Yep. So I've got this whole library of drums recorded with him in his studio with his outboard gear, and he was helping with processing and everything, and I haven't actually released that. So I have, mm. I have all those samples to myself because that, that one experience was like an eye opener at how much work actually goes into creating drum samples. And I was like, this is not a sustainable model. So that's why if anyone's wondering why drum trunk hasn't done anything, that's exactly why. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it, it is a lot more work than I think people imagine to get some of this uh, stuff mapped out and to make it do well. I remember researching it and I was like, I think I'm good on this. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what I'm going to do with that pack, but right now I'm using it for myself and it's, it's a lot of fun because no one else has them. Nice. How about pitch correction in your productions? I'm a huge fan of Melodyne. Mm-hmm. I, what I'd end up doing a lot of, for a lot of artists, especially ones that struggle with, with pitch when singing, which is a lot of metal bands, mm-hmm. I'll have auto-tune on the vocals while we're tracking to get it you know, relatively close because otherwise you know, you, it's just an absolute train wreck with some vocalists. Not all. Some are great to work with. That's, there's the 80-20 principle there. 80% mm-hmm. of the vocalists are terrible. 20 are great. Um, <laughs> but you know, I'll use auto-tune to 
get it close to where if autotune corrects it right, then that's good enough for me. And then I'll go through and manually do it with Melodyne. But now that I'm mixing and mastering, I don't do it anymore. If it's, if it's something that, uh, well, towards the end of me tracking, I actually had an assistant do it, but absolutely pitch correction because it's metal, you know, you're mm-hmm. not, you're not doing Celine Dion here who has you know, a great <laughs> voice and you can comp perfect takes, but <laughs> I, I'd say there's actually one band. It's a rock band I did back in 2010 and then the hard drive crashed. And then I did that same album for free again in 2011. Yeah, that's so I guess we it's, already know the answer to the question of tell us <laughs> one of the worst moments you had in the studio. <laughs> yeah, that's every, I feel like most producers have fucked that up once at least. And that's, you only need to mess that up one time to, to figure out how to do backups. Right. You, you know, knock on wood, uh, 21 years is that right? No, 17 years of Pro Tools, and I've somehow n- never had it happen, but I'm knocking and probably going to back up when I get off hard. the phone. <laughs> back, backing, backing up a second time right when I get off the phone. Well, you know what? Here's what I started doing. I have any active session I'm currently working on, I have in Dropbox. So it's recording to my hard drive, and as soon as the track's recorded, it's uploaded to Dropbox. So. Hmm. I have real-time backups of everything, so I could have every I could have my house blow up and lose every hard drive. But I have every session I'm currently working on. As soon as I'm done working on it, then I'll I'll uh, I'll put it on two backup drives. So I always have it on two drives. But you know, the Dropbox thing is incredible because you have a terabyte for nine dollars a month. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really insane. I would recommend that to, that method to anyone. That, that, uh, you, you know, it's funny. I, I've been toying with starting to do this, and then I, a Dropbox is so annoying on my computer sometimes with slowing it down that I was like, ah, I don't know. So you're inspiring me to maybe get, get started with that. What's your connection speed there? Uh, I, you know what? I never even measured, but it's not good. Um, the town that our studio is in is um, the average income is below if you make minimum wage. So it's uh, section eight. <laughs> yeah, it is literally uh, half the population is is not documented. Okay. Um, so, so it's not very less good. than I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas my you'll get Google Fiber there one day. Yeah. Whereas my home in in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, it's like you know it goes through the roof. And I download a terabyte in two seconds. Oh man. So yeah, I I would say if you have a decent connection, do the Dropbox route. Otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can still record it to your Dropbox folder, just have it paused, and then you know if, when yeah, you're at overnight, just have it running. That's a good point. I think I, I think I'm uh, I'm gonna do that. I love when I learn from these uh, podcasts. <laughs> so I was also gonna ask if you master your own records, which I imagine you do. Yeah, uh, I would say there's there's actually only one record that I didn't master, and it was the first label project I ever did, which is 2009. Um, it was a Victory Records project, a band called Before There Was Rosalind. It's the only record I didn't master, and. To this day, I'm convinced that even back then when I didn't know what I was doing, I could have done a comparable job with the tools I had. Interesting. So tell me one of the best moments you've had in the studio. Ooh, it's more of a story. I have a lot of good moments. I've, I've made friends with a lot of bands. I've had some really talented people come through and a lot of great memories. But one of the most ridiculous stories I can recount was a band I recorded in 2010 or no, 2011, called Bitch Gypsy. <laughs> they, were, they were a uh, late teens, early 20s, you know, 80s throwback rock band or metal band, and they were great musicians. You know, they, they had probably, they had more drug stories than anyone. They lived the lifestyle of what they mm. were singing. So at the time, I didn't have internet at the studio because I was living in the middle of nowhere. So I had to go, go into town to get the internet. <laughs> this tells you my living situation back then. But... You know, it, I was coming in around dusk back to the studio and I see a fire going on outside. So I was like, okay, we're going to have a little campfire, some s'mores or something. What it ended up being was, I'll just tell you the scene 
as I approached it. This is this is what I came up to. It was guys surrounding a fire bowing down to something. <laughs> and on the ground, this is a gravel parking lot, by the way. On the ground is a pentagram drawn into the gravel. In the center of that pentagram is a squirrel being sacrificed to Satan. And at the end of each point of the pentagram is a stick on fire. <laughs> so these, these guys... <laughs> We're making some sort of studio video. It was all comical, but it was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever approached. And I have a photo of it somewhere, but that, I, I don't know. It's that's a terrible story. It's a terrible story if, it, if, you, if you weren't there, I guess. But no, no, that's, that's it's one of the good. funniest things. I'll, I'll never forget that memory, walking up to these guys, worshiping a squirrel in a pentagram. That is pretty good. Is there a worst moment aside from losing that record? <laughs> Yeah, the, that was probably one of the lowest moments. And, and, and the worst thing about that was it happened, you know, at the end of me being in Alabama. That was actually the last, the re-recording of that album was the last project I did at the studio. And that was like, I'm telling you, at 22, 23 years old, maybe 24, living 45 minutes from my nearest friends and working, you know, 80 hours a week. That was probably one of the most depressing times in my life. I don't, I don't, I don't think I have any sort of like clinical depression, but you know, that was probably the closest or maybe I was experiencing depression, but it was, it was like a sad time in my life. And to have to record for three weeks straight for free <laughs> to top everything off, it was, it was like the, the big fuck you to Alabama. Like, I'm so glad to be out of here. <laughs> time to go to Nashville and start my new life. And I have nothing against Alabama. I, lo I, mm. I grew up there and I love it, but it was a, definitely a low point. So that I, I can't think of anything worse at my studio than that month. Wow. Yeah, that's, that, is, that is really rough. Tell me about a record you did that changed your life. I, I have never really had a specific record that I've done that changed my life that I can think of, at least. I, I look through my discography. Everything has been an incremental, incre incremental process. You know, from day one, I've never had an overnight success band. I've never had a band that kind of, or an album that thrusted me into the limelight of success. It, it's always been, you know, I, I do a band, they have a moderate amount of success. I get a few more from that. One of those bands does pretty well. I get a couple more bands from that, and it's a slow growth over seven years. Slow, mm. steady, and consistent. And I think a lot of people think that you know producers aren't successful unless you have that one huge record. But hmm. as long as you're hustling and, and are consistent with your efforts, uh, I think you can have success even if you don't have that one huge band on your roster. I, I, I've, I've had a very, just despite having this question in there, I've had a very si similar trajectory, and, and even funnier I think some of the records that have gotten me the most other bands are very shocking to people if they looked at my discography. It's funny how that works, and, and you can apply the 80-20 principle there as well if mm -hmm. you want. That's, a, that's actually a great point. Tell me about your three favorite producers. I'd say I have three. I have three. One is my favorite right now as far as mixes, Kevin Churko. I have, not heard, of, have not heard of him. Kevin Churko, he did... Um, He's done, he did like the new Papa Roach, Apocalyptica in this moment, I think is something he did. He's done a lot of really unique sounding mixes. It's kind of like this, as far, at least compared to my stuff, it's a little more raw, but I absolutely love his mixes. That's probably one of my favorite mixing engineers right now. Hmm. But if you're just talking about favorite producers, love Sam Pira. As mm -hmm. a dude, <laughs> be, 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 best dude ever. We had a nice, yeah. nice long chat last night. Actually, he's just a just a solid dude. He's like the kind of guy you just want to hang with all the time. And then uh, I don't know him personally, but Adam Nelly Get Good seems like mm -hmm. a very stand up type guy, a kind of, a kind of guy with a lot of integrity. So he's you know one of the guys I look up to. Nice. 
So tell us lastly, uh, what you've been working on lately. I just did a test mix for a band who has had a top five billboard release. I, wow. I can't, I can't say a name because a, I don't have the mixing job yet. Cause it's a test mix. You know, you know how those things go. I, if you I do, do. I do. If it's a larger band, I'll do it. Absolutely. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.